Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 83. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, like Chancellor of the Exchequer and Carpet World reject bin contents with a face, Philip Hammond, I too think it's best to buffer the rather gloomy future with a series of jokes. Though, unlike him, I didn't help cause the gloomy future in the first place, nor do I get my gags from some sort of boring dad joke generator. Well, not all of them anyway. Yes, the autumn budget has now been and gone, leaving in its wake, well, more of the same old shit rehashed in a new way, but with the added bonus of the PTSD of Philip Hammond telling jokes with all the charm of an old rug throwing up. One of Hammond's dead at the Apollo set pieces involved mentioning how he knows Jeremy Clarkson doesn't like driverless cars, but sorry, it's definitely not the first time you've been snubbed by Hammond and May. Hardy ha a joke somewhat hampered by a complete lack of likeable characters, and something massive-faced twat Clarkson could probably counter by just saying, at least I don't only drive things either in reverse or into the ground. The main news, though, was that growth forecasts for the UK have been cut sharply for the next five years. But then it is very hard to grow when you've spent the last seven years with your head up your own ass, gnawing away at your insides like a toothless Arubaros. But it's okay, everyone, because there were several policies from the Chancellor to help buffer this period of wage stagnation that will occur, such as reducing the waiting period first-time universal credit applicants will have to wait for their first payment from six weeks to... Fanfare, please. Just five weeks. Brilliant. Another great joke from Hammond there. I mean, what sort of compassionate move will the government make next? How about solving school class overcrowding by allowing children to hang out of the windows? Or reducing homelessness by reclassifying pavements as official residencies? Speaking of residencies, stamp duty will now be removed for the first £300,000 spent by first-time buyers, which in the south of England means they'll get a small discount on their letterbox. Oh, and £3 billion is being set aside for Brexit preparation because who knew that sandbags and rations would cost quite so much? So overall, we've got more wage stagnation until at least 2025, a continuation of austerity and then whatever Brexit will bring. Here's a hilarious joke for you, Phil, that you can use at your next budget. Are you ready? What is the actual worst? I don't know, Tin, and what is the actual worst? That's right, the current government. Yeah, that is it. That is the joke. No, I'm not going to do a mic drop as I can't afford another one if it breaks. You didn't see him cut microphone costs, did you? No, exactly. 
Meanwhile, the government have also decided that it's best to never tell the public the cost of the final Brexit bill, because nothing fits thrusting the country back to the Middle Ages like keeping everyone in the dark. They've also redacted some of the 800-page analysis on the impact of Brexit before handing it to the Brexit Select Committee. Considering it was only two years ago, Conservatives backing the spy law were announcing if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear, the government must currently be shitting themselves. I suppose there is nothing like dissuading the public from being angry with you, like the distraction of making them angry at you for not knowing what it is they're meant to be actually angry about. Apparently this information has to be kept secret, as it could compromise Brexit Secretary and mouldy cornflake David Davis's position in EU negotiations. Considering that his position is usually facing the wall in a dunce's cap, I really don't think it matters. Ireland have said that they will play tough unless UK Prime Minister and try-hard with a vengeance Theresa May comes up with a plan for the border between the Republic and Northern Ireland. May is insisting she will not allow a hard border, but the DUP, aka Stupid Gilead, have said that they won't have any plan for Northern Ireland that mirrors EU regulations, while the rest of the UK brexit fully. I'm starting to wonder if the best solution to it all is just a two-way mirror wall where Northern Ireland get the reflective side and the Republic can peer through like some sort of museum to witness Brexit live and point and laugh at all their favourite highlights. DUP MP and sad grape Nigel Dodds told the DUP conference on Saturday that God helped them become the kingmakers in Westminster in June's snap election. Now, I'm not a religious man, but I wonder if there's an incentive to pray if, like the referendum, God's now only hearing a small selection of very loud voices an awful lot, and if he'd only get out of his echo chamber, then maybe this sort of shit wouldn't happen. Brexiteer Labour MP and that lady on the end of your street who all the kids are scared of, Kate Hoey, said on Radio 4 that there is no need for a physical border, but if one is needed, then the Republic of Ireland should pay for it. Now, I'm not saying we're still leaps and bounds ahead in terms of progressiveness, but at least our UK version of Trump is female. As someone who voted for Brexit, something that I don't think there is any need for, I really hope Kate Hoey is forced to pay for it very soon, or by herself. Australia have been criticising the UK's Brexit plan, saying it could impose unacceptable restrictions on their exports. And that's not good, but if anything might persuade people that Brexit is a bad idea, it's an announcement that Kylie Minogue is now unaffordable in the UK and Neighbours is going to be pay-per-view. Across the pond, US President and porridge-filled windsock Donald Trump celebrated Thanksgiving by showing turkeys everywhere that if he can last a year as President, then there's every chance they could too. Just two days after the day when everyone annually realises that Native Americans are the only people in the world who are right to be scared of immigrants, Trump took to Twitter his personal loud hailer to insist that Time magazine called him to say he was probably going to be named Man of the Year again like last year, but he'd have to agree to an interview and photo, so he said no. Yeah, sure, Trump, and I bet your girlfriend goes to a different school, right? Well, it does make sense that Trump is again Time Person of the Year, mainly because he has a big face and two small hands. The magazine have denied they ever called him or had any intention of offering it to him in the first place. This also highlights the last time Trump gave an interview to a news station or paper that wasn't Fox News was back in May, which is a pretty odd precedent for a very odd president. But then again, what do you need to do interviews for when you can just bail your imaginary stories onto Twitter for free? And in news no one ever wanted to hear ever, Lib Dem leader and political Ken Campbell, Vince Cable, won't have his thriller Open Arms considered for 2017's Bad Sex in Fiction Award because his writing is too good. Though I do wonder if this is just what happens to Vince when he's involved in competitions with more than one contestant. Apparently Cable's book has a male character who says he wants to explore his lover like Dr Livingston and Mr Stanley exploring Africa. Again, proving Lib Dems can only really fuck things when part of a coalition. 
Lastly, Theresa May's convoy has been caught on camera driving through Berkshire and going the wrong way around a roundabout because it seems she is completely incapable of doing absolutely anything that doesn't sound like a metaphor for her shitty government. Greetings, earlenders. How are you? Excited about the prospect of another royal wedding? No? Well, you might be surprised to hear that I am, as it will mean that there is at least one day next year, one full day, where I can happily not pay any attention to the news whatsoever. It'll be brilliant. Uh, you might notice I am full of a cold again. This is like the fifth one this year. I, it's like my immune system isn't even trying anymore. I'm so full of vitamin C right now that if I donated my blood, its type would be Barocca. Anyway, um, as my brain is full of snot, apologies for sounding all stuffed up again. I can't imagine how many episodes you've had to listen to me go blah, 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 blah. Um, but uh, this week's show um, hopefully sounds all right. There are various topics I avoided this week. just I couldn't get my head around them uh, while it's so full of snot and... Um, and uh, I'm sneezing between most words, so the editing on this is really fun. Anyway, um, apologies for that, but look, uh, thank you for listening, and hopefully this week's show will be enjoyable enough that you won't notice that I sound like a sort of knockoff Richard Iowaddy. And if you are a new listener to the show, firstly, I don't sound like this every week. I promise, some weeks I don't have a cold, um, although this past year is surprisingly more often than it should be. Um, but please, please do listen back to old episodes just to check that I'm not lying, and also for the informative interviews that are all still worth a hear. Um, also, if you haven't reviewed the show on iTunes or Stitcher or Podface or Audio Bum or whatever your podcast listening app is, please... Please, please do. Um, even if you just write something along the lines of it's my favourite podcast featuring someone doing a bad Josh Whittingham impression or, you know, other nasally celebrity of your choice. Whatever, just please write something. That would be lovely. Um, please also do donate to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro for a one-off donation as it all really helps. I mean, this week, if you donated enough, I could have hired a sonorously voiced celebrity actor to step in and record this week's show and then when you'd have preferred them over me I'd have run away and cried which would hopefully drain my body of said cold and then fixed everything so yes please donate if you can uh, oh, also, it's great that several more of you are joining the Facebook group, but as you may have noticed, I am really crap at doing anything with Facebook. I hate it. This is such a pointless website. All it seems to do is tell me about lots of events that I have no intention of going to. Um, and I, if I wanted to do that, I mean, I could look at Time Out or go online. Um, so anyway, look, I was sort of hoping, that a bit like with the Twitter as well, which I was also hoping for, it could maybe become some sort of feed for interesting political articles and discussions on political things, or even should you wish your political gags um so look, any ideas you do have if you're part of the facebook group please do post them up and hey i'll only delete them if they're unsuitable or you know way better than my jokes and then make me feel jealous there is no other admin this week uh, except just to sort of give you a heads up that this run of this podcast is probably going to finish in a couple of weeks uh, with the last one on december the 12th and then i'm probably going to have a little bit of a break uh, and not bring it back until a few weeks into january however I am going to try and pop a few things online uh, in the meantime, a few bonus things. Um, so just make sure that you are subscribed, because then if you're subscribed, that means uh, you can get the mysterious things that are really only mysterious, because I haven't worked out what they are yet. <laughs> I mean, um, because if you find out about them, it could endanger my negotiating position. <laughs> Please do subscribe. OK, on this week's show, I am speaking to Marianne Stevenson from the Women's Budget Group on the pros and cons of last week's budget. Spoiler alert! 
It's mainly comms. Uh, plus, of course, there is some Brexit fallout because, I mean, when isn't there? Do you see what I mean about the Prince Harry wedding? That is going to be at least two days of sheer news crap about what hats people are wearing, who looks most like a horse, why, oh, why did Harry choose to wear his Nazi outfit for being the groom, and which one of her two facial expressions is the Queen doing? That'll be all it is. There'll be no Brexit crap, and we can all have a snooze. Oh, it'll be brilliant. Anyway, as always, um, before all that content, there is a little bit of this. For the first time ever, Britain is not going to have a judge on the bench of the UN International Court of Justice. No, it's not just because judges in this country are now considered traitors, so instead the government have decided to send someone who isn't an expert, his name is Steve, and he's just really good at hitting things with hammers and wearing wigs, so hey, he'll do. Um, no, this is actually because... After the Security Council and General Assembly voted in judges from Brazil, Lebanon, France and Somalia, it meant the UK were head-to-head with India to get the last seat on the bench. And the UK backed down, because we didn't lose if we didn't take part, right? Which is really the attitude I feel we should start taking with sports as well. How big a deal is this anyway? Well, it's not going to affect what you have for breakfast unless you have some sort of insanely cruel breakfast like fried human rights violations topped with illegal war on toast or something. Then the UN International Court of Justice has to condemn you for that. But otherwise, the UNICOJ is the big dog of justice in the UN. Based in The Hague in the Netherlands, it deals with cases brought to it by UN states that are often war-based or boundary-based or sovereignty-based or all that kind of light-hearted fun stuff. The UK has had a representative on the benches since 1946. I mean, not the same one, obviously, or they'd be really exhausted. But this is the first time we don't have a rep in 71 years. And the main thing is, and the reason we should be noticing it, is it is being taken as a sign that we're really not being viewed all that well by the international community anymore since Brexit. Then again, it is also a sign that India are rising up to become one of the world's most powerful nations, and they invented karma, so it kind of seems fair. I mean, speaking of karma, India are unseating Britain at the UN International Court of Justice in the same year as the 70th anniversary of the partition. Kind of seems right. The Northern Powerhouse always sounds to me like a brilliant pub or a music night in the 90s where people wore white gloves and moshed their tits off, but it's definitely not those things, as instead it's just a patronising name for a parliamentary group that aimed to attract investment to the North. And that is something that's hugely needed. I mean, Londoners get £1,500 more per head than those in the northwest. And I have to say, though, as a Londoner, if you were to look at my head, you really couldn't tell. I mean, why do you think I do this as an audio show? More than half of the UK's transport investment is happening in London as well, with think tank IPPR North commenting in a report back in February that it takes longer to get from Liverpool to Hull than it does from London to Paris. And you only have to learn half the amount of local words in order to get by as well. Hee <laughs> hee, I joke. But the London Crossrail project cost £4.7 billion for the 2016-17 period, while the total for every transport project in the North put together for the same period was only £6.6 billion. So the group headed up by Conservative MP for Carlisle, John Stevenson, will hopefully be putting a move on projects like the HS3 and electrification of the Trans-Pennine route between Leeds and Manchester, and then everyone can just happily get from Liverpool to Hull whenever they like, at which point, like many of us in London, they'll realise, God, it's really expensive to travel and then they'll have to stay indoors, not travelling most of the time anyway. Hooray for equality! The pubs in Theresa May's constituency of Maidenhead are planning to ban her from all of their premises as a protest against her slashing police budgets by £413 million. Pub Watch, as the group is called, which also sounds like a really brilliant spotters club that I'd definitely take part in. Um, they are tabling the call to ban Theresa May at a meeting this week, where they think it's the only way she'll get the message, as it could now take up to one hour for police to respond to incidents at their pubs. I mean, 
I can't really imagine Theresa May at a pub anyway, can you? She'll probably have to be smuggled in via the back door, would only talk to the landlord, and then she'd drink a beer while pulling her face like it was poisoning her insides. But still, I really like this idea, and I really hope more pubs take this initiative. And then after banning her completely, maybe they can name a really awful-tasting beer after her. The Theresa. Weak, lacks any real strong flavour, makes you pull a face like you've had to talk to real school children against your will. Ah, the budget. That time of the year when everyone who doesn't understand maths mainly waits to hear if booze is getting more expensive. And anyone who does understand maths mainly waits to hear if booze is getting more expensive because, hey, if we can drink through it, then really, little of the rest of it matters. This year's budget, however, involved the ever-grey Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, and his little red briefcase, like some sort of reverse Paddington, telling everyone that not only would the next year be shit, but UK growth is likely to stagnate from now until 2025. The film Pacific Rim is set in 2025. It's depressing to think that a more realistic version of that film would have several giant robots on strike because they're still getting 2007 wages to fight giant monsters, despite doing twice the hours and booze being really, really expensive. There was a lot in the budget that will help Philip Hammond keep his position in the cabinet, winning over sceptical backbenchers with money for Brexit, but also giving Conservatives handy things to say on doorsteps to voters such as, there's more money for the NHS, or we got rid of stamp duty. But like many of the government's policies, or in fact Daily Mail headlines, a lot of it falls down once you get to the detailed paragraphs that contradict the benefits you assumed were there when the overly bold text shouted at your eyes. Critics are already warning that this budget could lead to another recession with wage stagnation causing increases in borrowing. And the government, boasting about many of the increases to sectors such as healthcare or education when they're nowhere near enough to help, are kind of the equivalent of just pouring a cup of water in a drought-hit lake and then telling everyone you've single-handedly saved all the fish. But, as regular listeners will know, numbers are not my strong suit, and that's because my strong suit is the Jaeger weapon mech suit. Yes, this episode really is only for people who've watched Pacific Rim. But yeah, I find wrapping my head around the ins and outs of the budget quite difficult, though I did notice duty on booze is frozen, so I can at least afford a point while I try to think about everything else. However, for this week's show, I thought it would be best to speak to someone who could tell me and you exactly what this budget meant, and more importantly, what financial incentives should be happening instead. So... I spoke to Dr Marianne Stevenson, director of the Women's Budget Group, who are, as their website blurb helpfully explains, a network of leading feminist economists, researchers, policy experts and campaigners who are committed to achieving a more gender-equal future. The WBG released an immediate post-budget statement and will be releasing a more thorough, fully researched response at the end of this week. So, Marianne very kindly explained to me just where this autumn budget falls down. You know, like leaves in autumn. OK. I'll stop. That was probably as bad as one of Philip Hammond's jokes. Anyway, anyway, I hope you find this chat as hugely useful as I did. Here's Dr Mary Stevenson. The Chancellor used uh, the budget last week to announce that the economy's growth is going to be slower than previously predicted. Um, So was this budget a bleak one? Does it give us a sort of miserable outlook for British economy? Um, And did he do anything to kind of limit that? (laughs) Well, I think what we can see from the Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts is that, um, you know, the UK GDP is uh, due to be rising extremely slowly over the next few years. You know, the the forecasts for growth in the economy are very poor. 
And to be honest, it's likely to get worse because um, the Office of Budget Responsibility included in um, sort of uncertainty around Brexit in their modelling, um, but they took as as achievable the government's aim of having kind of seamless access to the single market while still not being part of the single market and that we would get some sort of good deal with the EU post-Brexit. And that's by no means certain. Um, if we don't get a reasonable deal post-Brexit, um, the economy is likely to be hit still further. Um, you know, the forecasts for the impact of Brexit on GDP range from um, 1.5 to 9.5 percent lower by 2030 than it would otherwise have been. Um, and the the kind of no deal scenario is, is the worst case scenario that would have the worst impact. Um, so bearing all that in mind, I think, you know, the UK economy is in a, a very poor position at the moment. Um, and well, what we can see from that really is that um, austerity has failed even on its own terms. I mean, not only has it had a devastating impact on the lives of, of people who've lost services and lost um, income from social security and tax credits, but it also hasn't achieved what um, George Osborne said it would achieve um, in 2010 when he first introduced the, the austerity policies of kind of, um, you know, a short period of pain followed by um, a period of growth. Um, what we've had um, is uh, lowest levels of growth since the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, just to um, uh, come back to austerity in just a second, but something you mentioned earlier, is it is it pointless almost to be doing budgets before Brexit now because we've got no way no way of knowing what's going to happen post-Brexit. So doesn't that mean that a lot of the, the kind of pledges and policies that are given now you know, might be completely pointless in No, I don't think time. so. I mean, I think now is the time to invest. Now is the time the government should be investing in infrastructure. Um, I mean, they're publishing um, proposals today for their industrial strategy, which does include some infrastructure investment, which is good. But um, infrastructure doesn't just include the physical infrastructure the government's talking about, you know, roads, rail, high-tech industries. It also includes um, what we would call social infrastructure, so health, education, care. All of those things are as essential to the well-being of the economy as, as roads and rail and telecoms. And what we would say is that the government needs to be preparing for Brexit by investing um, in social infrastructure, um, investing in, in care, in childcare, in health and education. You know, one of the reasons why the forecast for growth is so low is because of continued low productivity in the UK economy. Um, and this is precisely a time when we should be investing more money in education, for example, education and training um, to increase productivity rather than um, what's actually happening is, is an overall um, cut in real terms in education spending. Um, because, and, and, as you were mentioning earlier about the, the damages um, that austerity has caused for many years, it's, the, the government sort of briefly mentioned that they were planning to end austerity. I think it was several months ago. But it doesn't seem from this budget that that's 
happening at all um, in any of the areas. You know, education, as you said, is still hugely cut. There's the universal credit applicants. Uh, I think the pledge was to make the wait just five weeks instead of six, which I don't feel is going to make, yeah. is that gonna make mean, much that, of a difference to anyone. It won't make much of a difference. I mean, obviously, it will make a slight difference. It's better than nothing at all. Mm, sure. But actually, if you look at the impact of um, the cuts to universal credit, um, which happened in 2015-16, which are now kind of coming into effect as universal Universal credit is being rolled out into more areas. Um, working um, people who are claiming universal credit who are in paid work are going to be um, £1,200 a year worse off than they would otherwise have been. Women um, who are in paid work claiming universal credit are going to be £1,400 a year worse off. And um, black women are going to be worse off still. They're going to be £1,500 a year worse off. So that when that's to do with um, cuts to the work allowance, that's the amount of money you can earn before you start losing universal credit, freezes to the overall level of universal credit. So all benefits and tax credits have been frozen. And um, the two-child cap, which means that um, families with um, a third, who have a third child um, after April this year will only receive support for the first two children, which is effectively, you know, punishing children for the, the perceived failings of their parents. Um, what we're talking about here in very many cases, if people who are actually in work, um, it's just that the work they have doesn't pay enough for them to live on. Um, so what we've got is people suffering from a low-waged economy um, who the government is punishing through cuts to universal credit. And as you mentioned there, it, sort of, it affects uh, women and particularly black women even more so uh, than men. Is it... Has this budget done anything to kind of decrease gender inequality? Because that was, again, part of the, the government's kind of policies for the past year is, you know, um, try and in, uh, decrease the gender pay gap. And they've announced they're going to do more to, um, uh, to you know, to get towards better e equality. But this, this doesn't sound like they've done that with this budget at all. No. I mean, the gender pay gap for full-time workers um, has shrunk slightly in the past year. The overall gender pay gap, if you look at part-time and full-time workers, and bearing in mind um, about half of women in, in work work part-time, um, has actually increased slightly in the past year. Um, the, the government has increased the level of the national living wage, um, but that doesn't compensate low-paid workers for the cuts to um, tax credits and to universal credit or to the cuts to housing benefit, for example. So housing benefit um, for the past um, few years now has only been available um, at the lowest third of rents in a local authority area and has been capped at four bedrooms. So if you are a large family, say a multi-generational family, where you've got grandparents, parents and, and children all living together um, and you need more than four bedrooms, you won't get housing benefit for more than four bedrooms. So the, the effect of that is to encourage large households to split up. Maybe parents are providing care for their for their elderly parents um, can no longer afford to live with them. So it may actually become more expensive if you have two households um, claiming housing benefit rather than just one. Well, that's that's really hard. Um, and, and I mean, is this... You know, if, if we sort of move to slightly more specific areas, but you're mentioning housing, then this 
another one of Hammond's pledges was that he was going to fix the housing crisis and fix the housing market. But again, none of these proposals so far sound like they're going to do much to help that. Was there anything useful that he said in his uh, housing policies? I mean, the problem has been that the focus in on housing has been on the private sector and particularly people buying in the private sector. So it's all about trying to make it easier for first-time buyers, for example. Actually, it looks like the, the changes that the Chancellor made may may make things worse rather than better. So reducing stamp duty, for example, may just lead to um, house prices going up um, because, you know, first-time buyers can afford to pay more. But for the the majority of people who are in the most severe housing need, um, the private sector is not the solution. You know, private rent in private rented accommodation is um, beyond the reach of many. The idea of saving for a deposit is completely unrealistic. Um, what we need is more social housing. Um, we need local authorities to have the power to um, borrow to build more social housing um, and to have security to know that that social housing, they won't be forced to sell off that social housing um, because the, the private rented sector can't provide the housing that the people in the most severe housing need need. Yeah, I mean, so there's been no pledges to increase social housing whatsoever, have there? There is a little bit of additional money for social housing, but not very much. The problem is that the focus at the moment, people keep talking about affordable housing. Now, most of us might think affordable housing means housing that people can actually afford. It doesn't really. What it is, is housing that's at 80% of market rates, either to rent or to buy. Um, but in many parts of the country, housing at 80% of market rates still isn't affordable for large numbers of people. Um, so Shelter did a calculation a few years ago looking at a couple um, on the minimum wage where one, one partner was working full-time and one partner was working part-time with children um, and calculated that in about half of English local authority areas, affordable housing wouldn't be affordable for those people. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm a North Londoner, so it, that's exactly what it's like here. It's uh, it, Yeah, I mean, if you live in North London, you know this, even at 80% of market rates house prices, whether to rent or to buy, are still massively out of the reach of large numbers of people. Yeah, it's a complete... And, and the, the thing I noticed with... I think there was the pledge to cut stamp duty, but it was for up to 300,000, I think, or properties up to 300,000. And again, in North London, that's impossible to find somewhere that much. So it, yeah. it doesn't really help in that yeah. uh, area either. Um, and I think I read somewhere that the talks are that just cutting that will mean that house prices rise in order to compensate for the lack of stamp duty. So it may end up not helping. Well, that that people can afford, people who can afford to buy houses and could afford to pay stamp duty can actually afford to pay more so that it, it put, pushes up house prices. The problem is the reliance on the private sector to provide homes for people has failed. Um, the, I mean, there are countries where um, the private rented sector does provide housing for large numbers of people, but it's organised and structured in a very, very different way. So people have longer term, more secure tenancies. Rents can't be increased, you know, at the whim of the landlord. Um, and the, the majority of landlords are large um, large organisations, you know, housing is seen as a long-term, um, low-risk investment. Um, it's not individual private landlords, um, you know, renting out a single house um, as basically as a pension for a future, largely because the pension system um, 
people don't see as, as completely reliable. And the problem with that is you've got large numbers of people who are effectively amateur landlords. They don't necessarily know what their legal obligations are. Um, they don't necessarily take those legal obligations seriously. Obviously, very many of them do, but some don't. Um, the standard of housing in, in the private rented sector is far lower than in, in social housing sector. Um, so you've got people who are in damp, unsuitable housing um, who, while they might have the right to ask their landlord to do something about it, also know that at the end of their tenancy, which is six months or maybe a year, the landlord can ask them to leave, um, which makes people very wary. And obviously for people with children, having to move house every six months or every year um, is completely unreasonable. You know, your children are settled in school. You don't want to have to keep moving schools for them every, you know, every six months or every year. It's, it's really um, destabilising. People need long-term secure tenancies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving house is one of the most stressful things you can do, I believe, isn't it? And uh, I, well, I remember last year that the, uh, the government voted for home... Uh, landlords didn't have to make homes fit for human habitation, which was... One of those votes that left me slightly flabbergasted um, <laughs> that, that 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 would be um, you know that that would be something that anyone would want to vote for, um, but yeah, yeah mm. really worrying. But so just to to move on to another area of the budget, the um, the NHS has been given a little bit more money. I think it's two point eight billion. Um, but again, I've read from quite a lot of NHS staff who've commented on it that this is not, it, you know, it's it's useful, but it's not anywhere near enough to deal with the uh, constant underfunding crisis that the NHS has. Um, was this just a token gesture then, do you think? Or? Well, I mean, it's 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 um, a, a serious amount of money, but they're right. It's not sufficient to deal with the underfunding crisis in the NHS. The thing is, we have had years where the NHS um, hasn't had sufficient funds to deal with changing demographics. We have an ageing population. That's a good thing. You know, it's good that people are living longer, um, but it does create um, additional pressures on the NHS um, and that we need to fund um, the NHS in order to meet those pressures. You know, we've got um, expanding possibilities of what medicine can do. So, you know, costs are likely to go up. I think one of the problems is that we have been told for a long time that we can have kind of Scandinavian levels of health services with US levels of personal tax, and it's not possible. Um, if we want uh, an NHS that's fit for purpose, we need to pay for it. Um, and the, I mean, the funding for the NHS is linked to the crisis in funding for social care, which wasn't mentioned at all in this budget. Um, you know, one of the big pressures on the NHS is people who are unable to leave hospital because their social care package isn't in place, which means there's a huge pressure on beds. You know, there's a really unpleasant term, bed blockers, which kind of implies that, that people are, are somehow stopping other people who, who need the beds. Those people need the beds. They need to be looked after. The problem is um, they could be looked after outside hospital if if social care wasn't in the crisis that it is. Um, so when you think about the NHS, you have to think about the NHS and social care together. You can't think of them as two separate things. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week, Brexit fallout begins with the Emerald Isle. No, not Greenland or where the Wizard of Oz lives, but Ireland. The island, not just the island, if you see what I mean. One of the big issues of Brexit has been that if the UK, including Northern Ireland, is to leave the European Union, but the Republic of Ireland is still in the European Union, which it will be, how on earth do you control customs and border issues between the two without either having a big free-for-all, anyone can pop over handy freeway for EU citizens to our no-foreigners-allowed blighty, or having a big iron wall get erected, smashing all the peacekeeping years between the two countries, kicking off new troubles and physically dividing the island for years until David Hasselhoff gets round to writing a new song. Well, no-one wants a physical border to happen, but from the EU's perspective, they want to make sure the Irish border doesn't become an entry point for import and export goods from third countries without any checks. Then if you're not going to have border controls, or at least a big bouncer bloke who looks so angry and sees if you're wearing the right shoes, then how can this be done? According to Labour MP and honorary UKIPper Kate Hoey, it could just work because Norway and Switzerland don't have physical borders between the EU countries they neighbour, and hey, that works. But what she's ignoring, which no one will be surprised by, considering all the other things she seems to ignore, is that Norway is part of the European Economic Area, which means it still participates in the single market and is part of the Schengen Freedom of Movement Area. And Switzerland isn't part of the EEA, but has agreements that mean it's also part of the single market and the Schengen Area too. So for Northern Ireland to have the same sort of relationship with the EU, the UK would have to pay extra per year to stay part of the single market, something the government is insisting it doesn't want to do. Ireland isn't part of the Schengen Agreement, so the UK wouldn't have to join that, which would keep the angry anti-immigration racists happy, but then if we were to join the single market, we'd likely have to accept the other freedoms of the EU, including free movement, which would then make the angry anti-immigration racists all angry all over again. So with the UK government and Brexiteers wanting the sort of non-negotiable, nothing at all to do with the EU Brexit-type Brexit, where does that leave the options? Well, there's a few possibilities. Companies in Northern Ireland could become Authorised Economic Operators, or AO, which nobody is calling them. And that would mean that individual businesses would have to prove they meet tons of criteria to do with health and safety, and then they'd have to pay quarterly customs duties to the EU, and then they wouldn't need border checks as a result. But you'd still need someone to check on who's authorised and who isn't, and that would mean random checks on vehicles crossing the borders, but they could happen a little way away from the actual border, meaning they wouldn't actually be a border control, but kind of a hey, just down the road from the border control control. Because sometimes the minor name adjustments make all the difference. I mean, sandwich technician still sounds way better than that grumpy fucking teenager in Subway, even though that sandwich technician still grunts at you and puts sweet corn on your sandwich, even though you specifically ask them not to, because they're like nuggets of awful. So anyway, all I'm saying is on the surface, that could work. 
There is also talk of on-site farm checks, but that would require more inspectors in certain remote areas for certain remote farms, so more money would have to be put into that. The other possibility is moving the border to the Irish Sea, which would mean it would sort of be physical border in the way big old cold waves are physical, but it would mean the coasts and harbours would become the checkpoints. However, the DUP say they don't want a border down the middle of the sea, even though, what with Moses and all that, you'd sort of think it would be right up their street. Another issue that's not really been considered is the cooperation on both sides pre-Brexit with healthcare as a mutual recognition of qualifications allowing patients to get medical help in either country. But post-Brexit, the British Medical Association have warned that patient care could be risked. Unless, of course, it's some sort of border-based hospital, which, with a catchy theme tune, I'd definitely watch as a soap opera. But a hard border can't happen. And considering the UK border force budget has been cut by £2 million, then the UK side of a hard border would probably just have to be staff hired from the EU to guard it anyway. The EU are saying that trade talks cannot begin until the Ireland-Northern Ireland border issue is sorted. However, utter disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox has said that the border issue should only be sorted after a trade deal between the UK and the EU has been agreed. And I hate to say it in the case of Fox especially, as it feels like he's often using Ireland as a negotiation tool, but they're both kind of right. I mean, you need to know what the trade deal is in order to work out what kind of border will be needed, but you also need to know what the border will be in order to work out what kind of trade will happen. Meanwhile, in Ireland, there's a political situation that could lead to a no-confidence motion in the government and a general election at Christmas because, hey, what's more festive than everyone getting the special present of an unexpected vote? So who knows what will happen? I have absolutely no idea who knows what will happen, but it's definitely not Kate Hoey or Liam Fox, who also this past week said that his efforts to boost the British economy were being hampered by British companies who are reluctant to do businesses with foreign firms. Yes, Liam, you Constantine ball bag. I'm sure that's it, and it's not at all because the Secretary of State for International Trade has breached parliamentary rules twice, keeps swatting around the world meeting dictators who are happy to do trade deals that ignore all human rights considerations, heads up an international trade board that only has him on it, and never seems to know what he's talking about. I mean, really, Liam Fox, if every time you meet a business and they say they're reluctant to work with you to increase trade with foreign companies, you've got to work out what the common factor in all those meetings is at some point, right? In other Brexit news, the government have announced a new post-Brexit industrial strategy, which surprisingly doesn't involve a return to the industrial era and children getting killed by thresher machines. But what it does involve is money for innovation in robotics and battery technology, you know, so the Conservatives can find a new leader. There are also tax credits for research and development and deals between the government, academia and businesses, including two deals already made with a US pharma company and a German biotech one. Basically, the government have picked industry areas the UK is already good at and thrown government money at it and got institutions they think are right for it to be involved and then private investors give money to it as well. It's also known as backing winners, which isn't really what this Conservative government are particularly noted for doing at any other time. Labour have said that this is aimed far too much out the south of England yet again. It's nothing new and it doesn't balance out the uncertainty of Brexit. And the Lib Dems have said that this is pretty much what's been happening for over five years now anyway and that the Conservatives are just repackaging it to make it sound fancy. Which, if that's true, then they really haven't tried very hard, have they? They should have at least gone for all new improved post-Brexit industrial strategy, though probably best that they leave off the it's whiter than white bit. Mm. And lastly, if there's ever really a lastly with Brexit, the EU have said that they won't allow a British city to become a European city of culture in 2023 on account of us not being in the EU by then or the EEA, which is what you need to be to be included as part of the criteria. But despite these really obvious rules, various city councils have kicked off, even though two of those cities, Milton Keynes and Nottingham, primarily voted to leave the EU. The government has also said it's disappointed with the EU's decision as well. I mean, what?! 
the prize gives the city EU funding, which you wouldn't want and you voted not to have. I mean, you've insisted we leave the EU. You can't just leave the gym and cancel your membership and then be all upset when you're no longer eligible for Gym Bunny of the Month, which I have no idea if it's a thing, but I'm betting it's definitely a thing. This whole story is like when two-year-olds say no to everything and then at some point someone asks them if they want an ice cream and they go no and they feel really pleased and then later have the dawning realisation that there could have been ice cream. Well, it's alright, I know how to fix this particular stupid tantrum. There is still a UK City of Culture award, so maybe what we should do post-Brexit is change the rules for that so it's truly a British award and the judges are not allowed to know exactly what they're voting for but they just have to really pretend that they do. And now... Back to Dr. Marianne Stevenson. Um, and so, were there any other? I mean, uh, as you said, social care wasn't mentioned at all. Were there any other areas that the uh, Chancellor missed or didn't mention at all in this budget that, um, you know, has has quite an impact? Were there things that you think should have been included? Well. As I said earlier, I do think that when um, they're thinking about infrastructure investment, they think need to think about the whole area of um, social infrastructure. Um, and that means, you know, proper funding for health and education, for example. I mean, there were announcements on education, but they were relatively small, you know, more money for maths, which is a good thing, um, more money for teacher training, but actually nothing to tackle the... Um, the crisis in funding in schools, um, which, as I said, um, ultimately will have a knock-on impact on productivity. You know, schools are um, essential for our long-term economic well-being because we need to have a, an educated workforce. Um, and if we have schools that are massively under pressure, schools that are having to lose teachers, class sizes are getting larger, fewer resources to deal with, with children who have got special needs, for example, um, that's going to have a, a massive long-term knock-on effect, both on the individuals concerned, um, who, who may be not getting as good an education as they might otherwise get, um, and on the overall well-being of the economy. Um, OK, now the harder question is, were there any positives to come from this budget that you think were useful announcements? Um, <laughs> I mean, the additional money on infrastructure is welcome. It's good, you know, Philip Hammond has recognised that there is a need to invest. Um, it's just the level of investment um, isn't sufficient to meet the, the kind of the pressures that the economy is under. There isn't anything on social infrastructure. And also, when you're investing in physical infrastructure, you need to make sure that the jobs that are created um, are accessible and available to um, women as well as men. So a lot of um, physical infrastructure jobs, construction jobs, for example, have traditionally been um, seen as men's jobs. There's all sorts of things you can do to um, modernise the apprenticeship system to open up new opportunities for women. There wasn't anything on that in the budget. Um, there wasn't anything on um, continued underfunding of violence against women's services. Um, there wasn't anything on what was happening, what's happening to local government. You know, local government has been extremely badly hit since 2010. An awful lot of austerity policies have been pushed onto local government. So basically, central government has cut um, budgets for local government, and it's local government that's then having to make the decision to cut services. Um, and I think that's a way of kind of pushing the, the kind of political pushback, you know, public... Um, 
upset and anger about losing services onto local authorities um, rather than onto central government who've, who've made the decision to cut local authority budget. Yeah, it felt like there was a lot of things that just seemed to be marginally repairing damage that's been caused over the last seven years anyway. I think um, I think it was Dawn Foster from The Guardian who tweeted that they, they wanted to halve homelessness, but homelessness has doubled since 2010, so it feels like it's just taking it back to where it was rather than helping uh, with the situation. I mean, that would be a help, obviously, but not to the extent that's needed. Um, I wanted to ask, are there any... Uh, because the, the opposition Labour's budgetary policies, um, they've talked about ending public sector pay cap there in government and um, putting £250 billion more for public spending. Are any of their policies viable alternatives? And there's been a lot of criticism of it. It would be more borrowing that would be needed for that. But is that a bad thing? Borrowing is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I mean, borrowing to invest to um, grow the economy um, is often a, a sensible thing to do. You know, one of the problems with the whole notion of austerity is the idea that the economy is like um, a personal budget, a household budget, that um, you shouldn't spend more than you earn. Um, but actually, you know, anybody who runs a business, for example, knows that you have to borrow. You borrow to invest. You borrow to invest in new equipment or you borrow to invest in training staff in order to increase um, the productivity of your company or, you know, increase the productivity of the economy. Um, and we would argue, for example, that... Um, borrowing to invest in care services and we've modeled borrowing to invest in childcare which has shown that um it pretty much pays for itself i mean there would need to be some additional spending but the the knock-on effect of um providing uh, free universal childcare high quality free universal childcare you create the jobs in childcare um that money is spent elsewhere in the economy that comes back you know money comes back in the form of taxes you have fewer people needing to claim benefits you've got more women able to enter the labor market who currently can't enter the labor market because of cost or availability of childcare so you create a virtuous circle um, by spending money. Um, and both this government and um, Labour op in opposition recognise that um, borrowing to invest is a reasonable thing to do. Um, our argument is their notion of what constitutes investment um, isn't broad enough, that it needs to include investment in social as well as physical infrastructure. Um, now, you've, you've mentioned quite a, a few policies um, that I know are in the, the Women's Budget Group uh, budget response already, um, so uh, I'll try not to ask you to repeat yourself on anything, but are there, um, <laughs> you know, are there any other specific financial policies that the Women's Budget Group you think that need to happen fairly quickly in order to remove social and gender inequality in the UK? What are the, um, you've mentioned education uh, already and, and certain areas of social care, what else would you recommend needs to happen? Soon? Well, I think there needs to be... I mean, one of the things that we've seen since 2010 is um, successive tax cuts in, you know, successive budgets which have had tax cuts. Um, so raising the personal income threshold, cuts to um, uh, corporation tax, cuts to fuel duty and so on. And those largely benefit men. Um, men 
earn more than women, so they benefit more from tax cuts, um, particularly higher rate cuts for higher rate taxpayers. The majority of higher rate taxpayers are men. The majority of those who haven't gained at all from raising the personal income threshold are women. At the same time, we have seen cuts and freezes to a whole series of um, benefits and tax credits. So I think, you know, one of the most urgent things to do would be to lift the freeze on benefits and tax credits. Um, these should be based on, our social security system should be based on what people actually need, not some arbitrary limit um, that's set in order to, to kind of prove a point about being tough on, you know, the kind of notion of, of skivers and scroungers. You know, um, most people receiving housing benefit, for example, are in paid work. With universal credit, large numbers of people in paid work who are now worse off than they would have been um, before these cuts and freezes took effect. We need to lift the two-child cap, um, which is iniquitous. As I said, it's punishing children for the perceived failings of their parents and also leads to the um, really unjust and intrusive um, rape clause, which is saying that, you know, if a child is conceived as a result of rape, you can receive benefits from them, but only if you've reported that rape um, and only if you're willing to report that rape to um, as part of your benefit claim. Now, we know the vast majority of women who are raped never report it to anybody. Um, so the idea that um, in order to get support for your child, you should have to do this is iniquitous. Also, the fact that you can, uh, in order to claim benefits, you, you have to not be living with the person who raped you. Well, actually, large numbers of women are raped within relationships. Um, you know, should their children be denied support um, because they're still unable to leave the, the person who's raped them? Um, I would argue not. Um, so we need to have a, a, a fundamental rethink of the social security system, a rethink of universal credit, which has lots of problems in its structure even before the cuts were made in 2015-16. So, you know, the fact that it's paid to a single person in a household um, makes women vulnerable to financial abuse. Um, it creates disincentives to, for second earners. So um, it discourages women from, from entering the workplace or increasing their hours, which creates problems later on the, down, the, down the line if relationships break down. Um, and at the same time, as I said, investment in social infrastructure um, and uh, tackling the continued problem of low pay in the economy. Um, which the public sector spending cap um, is part of, but actually most low-paid people are not in the public sector. Um, most low-paid people are in the private sector, so most public sector organisations have outsourced the lowest-paid jobs, so the, the cleaners, for example, catering staff, um, jobs largely done by women, have all been sourced out, outsourced to um, private companies. Um, as a way of saving money while these public sector organisations have had their budgets cut. But what it's meant is that the um, salaries of the lowest paid women workers have, have been kept low, um, not enough to live on, which is why we have people needing, needing to claim universal credit and housing benefit. 
Sure, and and, um, and and why most people using feed banks have got jobs, which is uh, just crazy, absolutely crazy that that should be happening in a, in a first world country. Yeah. Um, so I guess yeah. I mean my last question really is, how do we get you to be chancellor? Because I think that's uh, those are. <laughs> <laughs> those are... Um, I don't think that is a job that I would <laughs> want at the moment. No, very fair, very fair. Um, um, but I do think you know, looking forward, the. The thing that is coming over the horizon is the impact of Brexit. And we know that Brexit will have a disproportionate economic impact on women. Um, because if there is a fall in GDP and a future government responds by cutting public spending, we know public spending cut is cut. Um, we know that we will, if we get a poor deal with the EU, we will be more vulnerable to pressure from other countries that we might want to do trade deals with, for example, the US. Um, and if you look at what the US is likely to require as part of the price of a pay deal, that could have all sorts of impacts on public services. You know, um, US healthcare companies want access to the NHS. They want to be able to bid to deliver NHS contracts. Um, and uh, U.S. government is likely to want that as part of the price of any decent trade deal with the U.S. Um, if we get a poor trade deal with the EU, we will need to make trade deals with other countries, and that will put us in a very, very vulnerable position. So we need to be keeping an eye on what's happening with Brexit um, very, very closely. Big thank you to Marianne for letting me interview her. Um, you can find the Women's Budget Group at uh, wbg.org.uk or on Twitter at Women's Budget GRP, Women's Budget Group. And uh, as I mentioned before, they'll be releasing a more thorough full response at the end of this week, uh, put together by their network of academics and social policy experts. And you'll be able to find that on their website. And I'll link to it uh, on the podcast, Twitter and Facebook accounts as well. Um, Marianne's own Twitter is at uh, MaryAnnCV8. Um, and I can put forgot to ask Marianne for other recommendations of follows because my head is that full of cold. So um, may I quickly recommend Positive Money, the New Economics Foundation and the Resolution Foundation as well, all of whom have written very good stuff on last week's budget too. As with every single God diggity damn week, if you have someone that you think I should interview or you'd like me to, or a subject you'd like me to find someone to interview about, then please, please drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, uh, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or failing that, you could send it via the ancient Roman Empire delivery service, Cursus Publicus, but considering that it stopped in the late first century during the rule of Hadrian, it might not get to me till after Christmas now, so it's best to just email. And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you again for listening. Please do subscribe, review the show on your favourite or least favourite pod apps. I don't discriminate. Uh, donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi and please drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com about anything you like really i mean i'm just as up uh for you contacting me about politics things as i am reading about i don't know your views on how you should spell the word cash yeah think about it it's upsetting isn't it someone told me think about how you spell the word cash all the way back in 2010 it's still bothering me no it's not c-a-s-h that's cash no it's not c-a-s-j that's cash yeah look Think about it. Oh, it's so annoying. Um, thanks, as always, to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all of the musics. Uh, this show will be back next week when I'll be talking about how Kate Hoey insists the EU should pay for a wall around their borders to prevent her from accidentally visiting. Bye!
This week's show is brought to you by Theresa May's Highway Code. Full of dead ends, more U-turns than necessary, constant hard right warnings, lots of loose chippings and a complete lack of give-way signs. 